The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a bonus episode of What Could Go Right. I'm Emma Varvalukas, Executive Director of the Progress Network. This episode is from a live event the Progress Network hosted on March 11th, 2021 with three of our members. Take a listen. Hi, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for joining us. So we're here today. You know, we put a curse word in the event title, but it seems wrong to, to really say it. So I'm going to say welcome to Maybe We're Not Ept, uh, <laughs> the climate conversation forward. We're really excited to have this conversation. And we are here with a few people today. One of our panelists, Ted, unfortunately, is only be able to join us for half an hour, but he has gone above and beyond to be able to join us for that half hour. So thank you very much to Ted um, and to all of our panelists. We are the Progress Network. We're an idea movement for a better future. And if you're not familiar with us already, you can learn more about us at theprogressnetwork.org. And with that, I'll go into panelist introductions. So first one with us here today is Jason Bordoff. He's the founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia. He joined there in January 2013. And before that, he was a special assistant to the president and senior director for energy and climate change on the staff of the National Security Council. And prior to that, he was holding senior policy positions uh, on the White House's National Economic Council and Council on Environmental Quality. And our second panel, Ted Nordhaus, he's a leading global thinker on energy, environment, climate, human development, and politics. He is the founder and executive director of the Breakthrough Institute, executive editor of the Breakthrough Journal, and co-author of an Eco-Modernist Manifesto. And he has a book called Breakthrough, which you might be interested in checking out. And Fina Venkatraman, uh, who is the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe and a fellow at New America. She also teaches at MIT in their Department of Science, Technology, and Society. Her first book was The Optimist Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age, which was a roadmap for how we can plan better for the future and think more, you know, in terms of long-term thinking. And Last but certainly not least, our moderator and founder of the Progress Network, Zachary Carabell. He's a, a columnist, an investor, a very prolific author. Um, you might have seen his work anywhere from Slate to Politico. He writes about economics, politics, and he has a new book called Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. So be sure to check that out. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Zachary. 
Thank you. And thank all four of you for being here. Thank you, Ted, for uh, juggling a complicated life. I'm sorry we only have you for 25 minutes, but 25 minutes of Ted is you know worth at least an hour and a half of a normal human being. And uh, and then when you quietly go gently, not into that good night, but whatever, uh, we'll continue the conversation till eight. And as Emma said, we'll uh, do questions to the, the Q and A function. Um, you know, just to frame this a little bit. I mean, yes, the, the Progress Network is a creation meant to highlight to a culture that has been relentlessly focused on the downsides and the negatives that even if those things are true, there's a panoply of people who are engaged in the work of trying to solve problems and create a future that is one that we would want to live in rather than either resignedly you know, declining into a, a, a pessimistic future or uh, giving up in resignation because we think that everything's going to hell in a handbasket. It's not a Pollyannish, things are great. It's more of a sensibility, not of outrage, not of continually focusing on everything that's going wrong, but also focusing on what could go right. Um, given that the what could, what could go wrong question is asked and it is asked again and it is addressed and answered every day in media, in our culture, in our politics, to some degree even, I'm sure, in our own personal lives. So I just wanted to frame it in that sense. And then, you know, we'll have a kind of a free form conversation about this. Um, there's, I suppose, a, a, a window more of optimism slash hopefulness amongst those who care deeply about climate, about climate change, uh, given both the commitment or the renewed commitment of the incoming Biden administration to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords on the one hand, and the recent announcement coming out of China, which is you know soon to be the largest emitter of, of, of carbon in whatever form, uh, that it wants to be more or less carbon neutral by 2060. I mean, whether or not that happens is a whole other question, which I think we'll get into. Uh, but that doesn't, in the in the moment, change the arc of these developments. You know, the planet is warming, climate is changing, and we're dealing with the effects of that. The question is, and I want to, I think, turn first to Bina around this um, catastrophism and the kind of relentless focus on what all the incredible doomsday scenarios are for climate change, oceans rising, cities becoming uninhabitable. I'm doing this from Miami right now, which is probably its own ground zero for rising oceans and changing temperatures and climate. And the legacy, let's say, of Al Gore and an inconvenient truth being a kind of collective grab everyone by the lapels or by the shoulders and shake them and say, this crisis is coming, pay attention or else you know, on the one hand, probably galvanized, but I think there's a legitimate question of, did it also enervate? And you spent a lot of time writing about, in your book, The Optimist Telescope, and in some of the work you did both in government and then after about how do you manage to get people to believe that, that things can change in a constructive way, even in the face of data and science and reality that are, are very challenging and troubling. Yeah. Uh, well, so you're sitting there among some real estate. There's billions of dollars of real estate that are at risk there in Miami. So I'm not going to sugarcoat that um, there's not a threat of cities becoming uninhabitable or um, of civilizations being you know, seriously remade. But I did spend a lot of time and I have spent a lot of time uh, delving into the behavioral science around how people respond to threats in the future, how they respond to predictions, uh, how they respond to opportunities in the future, and how 
that intersects with what we really need to do about the climate crisis, which is to act on the climate crisis, act to avert it, act to prepare for the impacts of it, uh, act to adapt, invest in technologies, uh, act to mobilize our social and political systems and infrastructure to respond to it in a very serious way. So the question of what message works um, is a very contingent question. So if you want to get people to react really quickly to something, uh, outrage can actually be of great service. Uh, and it's not the case that, you know, panic is always a bad thing either, right? Sometimes panic gets people to react and to do things that they need to do in short orders of time. I mean, if you think about some of the panic around um, the depletion of the ozone layer and the rising threat of cancer in the developed world and how that sort of triggered people to be motivated to press on their uh, political leaders. And we ended up with the Montreal Protocol, a global agreement to cut CFCs. Uh, we have a different problem as a result of that now that relates to warming, which we can get to if we want to. But I think what um, is clear is that doomsaying alone and um, fear alone are not sufficient to motivate people to take the action we need to on climate change. And Part of the reason for that is that the research does show that when you are constantly walking around with a sandwich board saying the end is nigh, and um, when you're constantly painting for people a picture of a world that they can't impact, that they can't influence, if you tell them it's inevitable that there's going to be a refugee crisis, the seas are going to rise, your favorite places are going to be lost, uh, the wildfires you saw in Los Angeles in 2020 are just the beginning of what you will see. Not that any of that is false, not that you can't tell people that as well, but if you tell them that without the message of what could be done to change course, what could be done to influence that, what agency do they have, what agency do I have, what agency do we, do we have collectively, you know, people are going to feel like, why not just party like there's no tomorrow? Why, um, why take action? Because my voice or my part of this seems really to have no impact or influence on the actual outcome of this. So I think that there's a real need, particularly in the climate change conversation we've been having over the last couple of decades, uh, to shift towards looking at those points of action agency uh, decision-making make, decision um, that can lead to a different kind of future. And I think a really important component of that, and then I'll be quiet because uh, I want to really hear what Jason and Ted have to say about this too, uh, is imagination. So I write in the Optimist Telescope about um, the difference between a good forecast and having foresight. And so you can give people predictions of the future. You can tell them the planet's warming by X degrees. You can tell them the sea levels will rise by so many feet. Um, but in order to take that seriously and do something with that information, people need to be able to imagine an unprecedented set of situations in society, uh, an unprecedented level of change but also an unprecedented level of possible opportunity. What could communities that actually respond to this crisis look like? What could communities that run on green and clean energy look like? Uh, what could truly resilient, inclusive communities look like in the future? And that enabling of that sort of imaginative space of the future to imagine positive futures and not just negative futures, uh, I think has been missing for a long time from the climate conversation, but is starting to come in in different ways that we can get into. I mean, Ted, you created a whole institute sort of dedicated to uh, innovative, dramatic problem solving of crucial, acute crises, right? Uh, and you also write about 
some of the politics of this uh, uh, globally. You know, you wrote recently about China's sort of placing a marker in the sand. You did a piece for foreign policy about that, uh, you know, bold vision of a non-carbon future articulated by a authoritarian state that also has more ability to marshal resources to do so. So, I mean, does all of this make you kind of wake up and go, huh, things are looking up or not necessarily? I mean, I, uh, I'll i say a couple of things. First, to just build on what Bina just said, uh, which is exactly right, um, is that um, you're not going to mobilize the kind of resources uh, that you need to address uh, this sort of problem uh, by sort of basically trying to just sort of scare people straight um, with really apocalyptic kind of uh, stories about sort of the end of the world. Uh, you're actually going to do it. You know, people are going to actually make the commitment that it takes to sort of build a low carbon, equitable, prosperous global future, uh, you know, if there's sort of some vision of a future that they want to be a part of um, and that they can um, uh, sort of see see themselves in and see themselves being a part of. Um, and that's a little different from being, I think, sort of, uh, sort of totally utopian, um, where which is the other place that a lot of environmental discussion goes. So we're kind of faced with this choice of, of um, kind of apocalyptic kind of millenarian collapse uh, on the one hand. And then the idea is that uh, if the scales fall from all of our eyes, we'll build the utopia, you know, um, 100% clean energy tomorrow, and it's going to be completely, you know, equitable. And the reality, uh, you know, it's funny because I, I started this place called the Breakthrough Institute. But, you know, the reality is it's just going to be a muddle. It always has been. It always will be. That's actually what progress looks like. It's a muddle. It's one foot in front of the other. It's don't tell me about, you know, what the the sort of sea levels or the hurricanes are going to look like in 50 years. Let's talk about the kind of investments I can make right now to make my community, to make my country better, to um, clean up the air. Um, and, and in doing those things, we'll also address climate change. Um, so, so for me, you know, uh, when we talk about the breakthrough, <laughs> so to speak, the breakthrough is to kind of go like, like it's not zero one. Um, you know, more clean energy is better than less clean energy. Um, uh, a, a less hot climate is uh, better than um, a hotter climate. That's true today. It's true at two degrees Celsius. It's, cr it's true at four degrees Celsius. God forbid uh, we won't get there. Um, and, um, you know, we need to kind of make a commitment for the long haul. We need a politics that can last for the long haul. Um, it's going to take decades to do this. Um, and it's got to work all over the world, not just in really rich places like in the U.S., but in really poor places, too. Um, so and, and places that uh, not only are they poor, but like, you know, they need uh, they need to consume a lot more energy. They need to build a lot more infrastructure. A lot of that infrastructure means steel and concrete and things that aren't as easy to decarbonize as, uh, you know, your home electricity or the electric vehicle that rich, you know, rich people uh, increasingly drive in rich countries. Um, so uh, so it's a hard problem. It's not an easy problem. It's going to take a long time. And I think we need to kind of construct a politics that can last. Uh, and that is not a, a, a catastrophist politics, which exhausts people. It invokes 
fatalism um, and, and, and is also deeply polarizing. So before we go to Jason, just, I mean, we'll also have you for a limited time, just talk for a moment about what you think about what China and, and Xi Jinping's 2060 marker is, uh, you know, is that a good thing for a country to kind of commit to something that is far beyond anything that any kind of global government or groups have committed to? It's probably not feasible, although I guess we don't necessarily know what's feasible until you actually marshal the resources to see what's feasible. So, I mean, what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I so I've always been a skeptic of long-term targets of all sorts um, because because they're just un, they're unenforceable. And whether it's an emissions target or a net zero target or even a clean energy target, you know, tell me what you're going to do next year, or tell me what you're going to do in five years. Tell me what you're going to do in forty years um, when you're going to be dead um, is not very helpful. Um, and 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 no one should believe it. Um, on the other hand, you know, what I think is very interesting about, I think there's, there's, there's at least two things that are really interesting about the commitment that China just made. The first is that um, it, uh, um, like whether or not they get to zero in 2060, like when China makes a commitment like that, it's not just like, you know, honestly, Joe Biden being like, we're going to be a climate leader and my goal is zero by 2050. Like, like it actually, um, there's a whole, like, like they actually really do industrial planning. It's a centralized economy. Um, so even if they don't get to zero in 2060, I think that likely what we're going to see is that it's going to mobilize a whole lot of very focused sort of industrial planning resources in the way that a place like China can, you know, still does industrial planning and we don't, that I think is likely to accelerate the pace of decarbonization, even if they don't hit that mark. So I think that's pretty important uh, and pretty significant. I think the, um, you know, the other thing and this will be a controversial thing to say, is that I think in some sense we can thank Donald Trump for it, which is I think that one of the sort of um, perhaps counterintuitive uh, uh, kind of things that happens as Trump comes in and is like, it's a Chinese hoax and we're out of Paris and I'm going to try to like bring back the coal industry, which of course he failed at. Um, but is I just think the whole rest of the world, first of all, goes enough, we can't just, you know, waiting for the U.S. to sort of lead us all to the promised land on climate change is not going to happen. Um, and I think uh, because of not only that, but a bunch of other ways in which Trump really uh, and, and sort of Trumpism really kind of um, uh, created a vacuum. And I think, uh, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, leadership looks at that and kind of goes like, and this is the part that's not so great, right? Which is that I think you have to understand China's climate commitments and a set of a broader set of sort of geopolitical strategies. So, you know, if you want the Europe, the Europeans to shut up about what you're doing in northwestern China right now to the Uyghurs or what you're doing in Hong Kong or militarizing the South China Sea, a pretty good way to do it is to make a really bold, ambitious climate commitment. Um, so there are some ways in which that commitment is double edged that I don't think we talk very much about. Um, and I think that, you know, even one thing that's going to be consistent from the Trump administration to the Biden administration is, I think, a, a, a pretty um, uh, 
um, let's just say a more hawkish hawkish view towards China than we saw in the Obama years uh, and and going back to Bush and 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 even Clinton before then. So. Um, where that ends up, I'm not sure. And whether we'll be sitting here five years from now going, that was really important and it was the turning point for climate change, even if it was, or whether we're saying, boy, that was really kind of the end of the old international, liberal international order. And this thing that's coming coming after it, uh, um, you know, is concerning in a lot of ways that don't have a lot to do with climate change, I think is an open question. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. So Jason, you um, recently wrote about Biden and joining the Paris, rejoining the, cl- the Climate Accords, kind of a lot what, what Ted said of, you know, it's not like the world's going to go, thank God, the United States is back, now we can all get to work doing all this. Um, but I'm also interested in your thoughts, kind of building on, on, on Ted, on this, this, this idea of bold markers, right? You know, the 2060 moment, and we're going we're gonna to do this. And there was some, certainly, talk about a Green New Deal during the election that was going to I guess, achieve X by, by date certain, right? Um, should there be more of that now? Should there be like, you know, it should, there, there was a space race in the Cold War and there maybe there should be a decarbonized race in the Cold War part two. Yeah, well, this is, um, agree with what Bina and Ted uh, have said almost in, entirely. And I, I think Ted is right. Uh, when you have a centralized planned economy that does industrial policy, long-term targets can be more meaningful. We should note that China, to his point, also does five-year plans. And they're really important to look at as well. And if you want to get a sense of whether they're taking a 2060 or 2030 target seriously, let's see what's in their five-year plan. They tend to take those pretty seriously and meet those. Um, I think Ted would agree also that when we look at what China's doing, um, 
they, they do believe in climate change and climate science. When you talk to senior people in government, they also have a domestic constituency with local air pollution. They do view this as industrial policy where they're trying to lead in what they view as emerging, growing parts of the global economy and batteries and solar and electric vehicles. It is geopolitical. And that's why you see a disconnect between some of the ambition domestically, and they're still using a lot of coal, don't forget, um, but what they're doing domestically and what they're doing internationally. And they still are building you know, a fair number of the world's coal-fired power plants. And so I think what will be important is to see the same, to, to the extent we see an increase in ambition for climate domestically within China, that we start to see that in their foreign policy uh, as well. I think the the long-term targets of net zero 2050, which are, you know, you just open the newspaper any day and everyone's promising net zero 2050, uh, governments and countries and cities. And that's um, good in part, right? It, it Because it is a reflection, to Bina's point, of uh, what's changing and what should we be optimistic about. And there are some things there to be optimistic about. And one of them is the sense of urgency, uh, that there is a growing recognition that this is a problem we are way behind on and the consequences are not uh, gonna be good. And we need to talk about how to communicate that and how to make people see it in a way that matters for them and is not doomsday and uh, everything is, is underwater, but but how what it means for individual people. But the, the clear shift in a rather short time frame that you see in public opinion, in, especially in younger demographics and the younger cohorts who are placing the ch- one of the challenges with climate action has always been that if you ask the American people, do they believe in climate change? The answer is yes. There's not a lot of climate denial even going back. But then if you ask them how important it is on your priority list relative to lots of other things like the economy and healthcare and everything else, it was pretty low. And that's what drives political uh, action. That's changing in a pretty significant way, I think, because we know who's going to bear the costs and, and, and deal with the consequences of this moving forward. So those that, that sense of urgency and commitment, we need to be committing to net zero 2050 and one and a half degrees needs to be the goal is a good thing. But and Ted spends a lot of his time working on this day to day, we need to take seriously what those targets mean and how staggeringly difficult it is to take a number like net zero 2050 seriously. It is not just about the fact that, you know, what do you want to be optimistic about? Solar has fallen 90% in cost. Wind has fallen 50, 60% in cost. Batteries are down 85, 90% in cost. That those are solutions that can often be cheaper with or without government subsidies in some cases uh, than say coal fired power plants. Um, but that's just a part, as he said, one part of the problem. We have a world uh, that is rapidly growing. Energy use is going up. Many parts of the world use a small fraction of the energy that we take for granted uh, every single day. Solar and wind make electricity, and electricity is only 20% of global final energy consumption. We can electrify some stuff, but there's a lot we can't. And so I think we need to have a more honest conversation about what net zero 2050 looks like on a global scale across all sectors, not just the electricity sector, but and not just electric cars, but trucks and shipping and aviation and steel and cement and all the things we know are a lot harder uh, and, and not lose sight of those. And that was part of the point I made in the piece about Biden. I do think people will welcome the Europeans, for example. I mean, um, I think it was Laurence Tubiana 
key architect of the Paris Agreement, who went on Twitter and said, when we rejoined Paris a few weeks ago, we welcome you back. And now it's time to put your money where your mouth is and show us that you're serious about this. With the kind of 2030 target we put on the table for the UN meeting this year, which everyone will be looking to, but then we back it up with domestic action. And uh, there's a limit. I mean, I think the Biden administration is throwing everything they can with executive authority, what they can do without Congress at this problem. Uh, they can do a lot, but they can't do enough without uh, congressional action and with technological breakthroughs and all the other things we're going to need. So we have a lot of work to do, but there's a lot of there is reason to be optimistic, too. So, Ted, we've got you for another nanosecond or two. You want to give us a, your, your valedictory mid event thoughts? Yeah, uh, I, I'll just say this applies to climate and it applies to progress more generally, which it seems like an appropriate thing to say about the progress network. But I think one of the things that uh, people have a hard time with, um, and, and I think it's what makes a lot of the discussions about progress um, actually weirdly controversial, um, is that progress is incremental. Um, you know, I think there is this idea or this demand for this sort of millenarian, let's change everything. And of course, we see it in climate change all the time, whether it's people who are like, you can't deal with climate change without getting rid of capitalism, or people who are like, you know, we've got, we've got 10 years, and after that, it's apocalypse, is is uh, this idea of this sort of millenarian radically, we have to reorganize society, the whole world has to shift, and it has to shift right now. And first of all, the world actually doesn't work like that almost ever. And when it does, it usually doesn't work well. Um, and that almost all of the actual progress we make on problems like this is incremental. It takes time. It's one foot in front of the other. And that just, just there's, there's no other way of dealing with climate change except that. And it's very disappointing to a lot of people. Um, and it's also... Um, uh, in my view, the only way forward uh, uh, to deal with the problem. So on that note, I really do have to go. I'm really sorry I have to leave early. This has been a great conversation. Uh, it's really great to meet you, Bina and, and Zachary. I haven't met you before. And Jason, it's always great to see you again. Good so to see you. So thanks for having me and for organizing this event. Thank you, Ted. So Bina, I, I want to I keep kind of on this, this question of, you know, what action, because you focused a lot also on, on what sort of not just the big picture of policy, but what specific people, individuals can actually do, right? Because a lot of people feel with these massive global trends that are going to evolve over, you know, decades plus that are basically planetary in nature. Um, there's a legitimate human tendency to go, you know, great, I'll, I'll recycle because I guess I should. It makes me feel like I'm doing something. But I kind of know that that in and of itself is not doing anything. Like mm -hmm. what... How do you communicate with people about both getting them to think in terms of solutions um, and also think in terms of agency? Okay, well, I'm going to get to that, but I need to, and this is a little bit rude because Ted left, but I want to disagree <laughs> in part with something he said because it's more interesting when I we don't all be, agree. I think he'll be, I think at a, be at a, Yeah, at a very minimum, it just makes for a more interesting panel when you don't all agree with each other the entire time. Um, but I do have a partial disagreement which is to say that, um, yes, a lot of progress is incremental and goes unnoticed. And that's part of the challenge we have with solving really complex problems, right? Because there's not a lot of um, political gain from, for example, not developing in a floodplain and deciding to prevent some major disaster from happening as opposed to 
you know, standing on the ashes of the World Trade Center after the disaster has happened and responding to the crisis, which has a lot of political, right? You get a, um, a political rewards for that in a way that you don't when you incrementally prevent disasters or incrementally <clears throat> solve problems. So I think it's true that a lot of progress has happens incrementally and we should take better care to notice it. And this relates to this issue of what individuals can do, because part of it is to notice and hold our leaders accountable in business and, and, and politics for making those kinds of uh, precautionary ch uh, changes and reforms that have foresight. Uh, but I do want to say that change is also nonlinear. So if you look at the history of social movements, for example, or drastic political changes, I mean, there, there's a reason why the people who advocate for a Green New Deal invoke the, the New Deal. And now, I mean, look at this COVID-19 rescue package that's just been passed, um, which is, you know, of a grand scale uh, that a level of spending that was just unfathomable two years ago before this pandemic struck. So I think the the reality is that crises, social change, disruptive technologies, um, all of these things, wars, um, true moral awakenings, like with the civil rights movement um, in the 60s here, 50s and 60s, um, can lead to dramatic change in our politics or our culture or our social mores. And so I think this notion that there can't be sort of nonlinear change, that we're just doomed to the same trajectory of progress that we've been making um, is also a bit fraught. And, and I think if we were just going to make progress at the pace we've been making on climate change, we would actually be fucked. And I'm sorry if I'm not supposed to say that. I don't think the FCC is regulating this. Yeah, they're, they're not yet. Um, but, but, you know, we do need um, a level and a proportion of political and policy response to this and cultural and social response to this that um, that is uh, more profound than what we've seen to date. And I think it's actually possible. And I think the reason part of the reason it's possible is because you can look back at other kinds of social and political change and say, wow, you know, on the eve of the Great Depression, you couldn't have imagined the New Deal. And then you saw the New Deal, you know, lead to these massive changes in social and political programs that supported them. So how does that relate to this idea of what the individual can do? I think, you know, this is a really fraught question in the climate community. People will say, um, you know, kind of create this sort of either or situation where it's either about individual action or it's about political action and policy change or economic change in the business sector. And I think the reality is it's about both and that both are mutually reinforcing. So I don't think we should pretend like this is about people recycling or about, um, you know, if you bike, if you just bike to work more days of the week, um, we're going to solve the problem because it is at the level of systems that this needs to change. Like the, you know, the policy incentives, the infrastructure needs to change, the electricity grid needs to change. And those things you can't change just by yourself. But I think there are two important ways in which our individual action can really matter. Um, and, and that is one is that, you know, we create, it's like a gateway drug by doing things that um, have an environmental ethic and that connect with a broader sense of being part of a, a planet and being part connected to nature, being connected to other people on this planet. Uh, people develop their resolve and their interest in the policy and politics of climate change and in voting to elect candidates that will do right by them in terms of policy and political action. And it's also true that when individuals take action, not in isolation, you know, I think we have this very individualistic strain in this country, 
But it's important to recognize that when you take action as an individual, that can also inspire other actions. So there is this concept of behavioral contagion, social contagion, um, that Robert Frank, um, an emeritus uh, professor at Princeton, has written a lot about. And it has worked with a lot of things, including with smoking and, um, you know, all kinds of different kinds of public health measures uh, that we've seen even in the pandemic, though not universally, as we know. So, So I do think there is a way in which you can influence others' behavior and your behavior becomes more than the sum of the, par- of the parts and a way in which the personal action really connects with the political accountability that's needed to make change. So Jason, I mean, it's an interesting point being, a, I mean, rightly says, look, in the past 12 months, the U.S. government has spent uh, close to $5 trillion between the $2.2 trillion plan in April, the $900, $800 billion at the end of December, and then another 1.9 trillion now. And then if you add up what European governments have said, I mean, the global, you know, whatever, the global government spending on, on pandemic relief, vaccination, <coughs> program, you name it, is surely close to around the 10 trillion that, that had been talked about as, as a Green New Deal target. Um, but isn't part of the challenge of that when you think about government behavior at, from a level of urgency that, that a pandemic happened with immediacy and urgency, much more like Pearl Harbor than uh, a 20, 30 year uh, gradual, but but in, in inexorable rise in, in temperature. I mean, do you think that, is there any government other than China, which can just sort of say, we're going to do this and then fill in the blanks that could actually motivate and, and mobilize? And Paris has been an interesting set of guidelines and guideposts, but it hasn't been and never was meant to be um, uh, a mobilizing of spending. No, and I think it's <clears throat> intentionally not intended to be a mobilizing of spending because most of the capital spent on the energy system is not government spending. So uh, what we need to do is change the incentives that consumers have and firms have to change how we produce and consume energy. I don't think we're going to government spend our way out of the climate problem. It's a global system-wide problem, and we need every time somebody decides what car to buy or how they're going to make their next building and how they're going to produce the cement and steel for it and what kind of factory they're going to build, um, change the incentives they have and also change the cost of the available technologies uh, that they have. So that's really important, right? The climate change is is, is a stock, not a flow problem. What what impacts climate change is the sum total of all CO2 emitted because it stays up there a really long time. 25% of the CO2 that's up there has come from the United States. Today, the United States is responsible for 15% of annual emissions that are continuing to add to that sum total. And moving forward, 95% of all emissions will come from outside the United States. So if you wanna talk about what climate leadership looks like for the US, I think we need to get our act together at home and we need a set of, there is government, a role for government spending to be sure. A big part of that, I think, should be on R&D and investments in technologies that will be needed to bring the cost down of decarbonizing and building new industries. Because as I said before, some stuff we know how to do, it's like solar and wind, and we can probably think about a pathway now that is cost effective to decarbonize electricity. Many sources of emissions are more difficult and more costly If we lead in developing those here at home, not only to bring our own emissions down, but to dramatically lower the cost of those technologies. So it's within the realm of feasibility and affordability for a rapidly emerging economy or a developing nation. You know, I said the U.S. is responsible for 25% of all CO2 emissions to date. A whole continent of Africa is responsible for 2%. 
and they're going to grow for decades to come. That's a good thing that they're going to grow. And we, to the extent they see affordable pathways to grow their energy use for economic development in ways that are uh, reasonably cost-effective relative to a more carbon-intensive alternative. If I think countries that have some historic responsibility for the emissions can help make that more affordable, that's a big role we can play to help uh, demonstrate climate leadership, as well as the commitment we put on the table in Glasgow later this year for whatever we're going to do here at home. So I want to get on to both of you to talk a little bit about the, the the private industry part of it, right? Because there's certainly been people in whatever we can loosely call the sustainability community that have said, hey, governments other than European until recently have been, if not behind the eight ball, not even playing the same game of pool, but you have companies and certainly multinationals that have been very aggressive in either setting these markers of a lower carbon uh, future and and lower carbon products because they feel it's important for consumers and marketing or because it removes a lot of their variable costs. And GM saying we're going to go to uh, I think 2035, they're going to go to an all electric vehicle. Um, other, you know, other parts of the world, certainly, you know, Israel, et cetera, doing much more uh, uh, battery power technology. Um, you know, maybe government has been over-focused on and that the, the just the drivers of Input costs, variable income costs always being a problem for companies. So if you can get rid of those by doing renewables or just being less energy intensive, all the better. Um, are we not focusing on that enough? I mean, I guess both being and Jason, you can take a look. I can start. I mean, Jason has a lot of expertise in this area, and I definitely want to hear his answer. I, I, I think it's a symbiosis between government policy and the investment world and the corporate world in terms of how they're innovating. And for that matter, you know, startups and new innovative enterprises that are developing new technologies or solutions to climate change. And I think we have seen, you know, you see areas, um, you know, for example, you see technology companies for reasons of talent retention or marketing and cost savings, you know, turning to renewables to power server farms and things like that. And that's that trend has been going on for quite a while that companies have looked at their supply chains or looked at ways to take action on climate change. Um, But I think you can't underestimate or undersell the role that either the specter of regulation, the specter of government co-investment, or the reality of those things uh, plays in shaping those policies. So if you look at the auto industry, for example, um, when President Obama's um, fuel emission standards uh, policy was rolled out, which was a dramatic part of his climate action plan, cutting emissions um, from the transportation sector, the auto industry lined up to be supportive of that and say, look, we're going to be innovative um, and we're going to come up with um, you know, more uh, emissions-free or low emissions fleets. Uh, there was a, an about face during the Trump administration. Um, when the Trump administration rolled back um, fuel emission standards, uh, the auto industry was right there supporting that. Um, after November, uh, GM <laughs> GM clearly had this plan in their back pocket. Um, 
and they pivoted back uh, to the electric tri- electricity. They knew, you know, Joe Biden was going to be president when they made that announcement. So I think uh, I don't want to be too cynical about this, but I do think, um, you know, I spent th- the work I did, which is it pales in comparison to what Jason did uh, in the Obama White House. Um, the work I did was a lot about trying to motivate the private sector to make commitments that matched the president's climate action plan. And I do think um, you know, some of those commitments that were made during that time have been seen through and some of them haven't. And, and so I think it's a combination of um, what market forces are at play, you know, the declining cost of renewables certainly plays a role, uh, what reputational concerns these companies have, what talent concerns they have, um, and, and how much they're having that like come to Jesus moment about what's going to happen to their supply chains, what's going to happen to their businesses in a material way. Yeah, no, I, if I, I did not mean to give the impression that the, there was not an incredibly important role for government. We don't solve this problem without government. I would not have created and run something, uh, an Ener- energy research institute with the word policy in it, if I didn't think it was important to spend my career focused on policy. I was specifically referring to the role of government spending, which I think is important, but you know, the amount of government spending that's going to be solved to build a clean energy economy, which is going to be somewhere around $70 trillion between now and 2040, according to the International Energy Agency, most of that will be private capital. Uh, And we're going to need government spending for things where there are market failures like R&D or things where there are network externalities and benefits to everyone else like building infrastructure. So if we want to build... you know, uh, a, a new a new hydrogen economy. How are we going to think about the port infrastructure for that, or the pipelines that are needed? Uh, how do we think about electric vehicle charging infrastructure to allow greater take up and demand pull? What Biden's doing with government procurement to help give demand pull and lower the cost of emerging technologies is all very important. But but regulation and standards, whether it's a carbon price, a clean electricity standard, I mean, whatever mechanism, and we could talk about them. You want to choose. You know, we we had problems with pollution and acid rain and sulfur dioxide emissions, uh, which led to 50 years ago, 51 years ago, the first Earth Day, people on both sides of the aisle, urban and suburban, Democrat and Republican coming out in the streets, one out of every 10 Americans saying like, we can't live like this anymore. Someone has to do something about this, which led Richard Nixon, not a great environmental champion. It was just politically what he had to do to create the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Environmental Protection Agency. And it was those regulations that said, you can't keep emitting pollution. You have to stop. Um, And we're going to need government regulation that does something similar for the amount of CO2 we're putting in the air uh, and, uh, and, and, and change the incentives that people have to deploy private capital. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. 
And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. So one more question before we go to, I think there are about eight questions in the chat, and I'm going to have to actually move my computer for a moment because I'm running out of energy, which is so (laughs) weirdly appropriate given the conversation we're having. Breakthroughs Um, in battery storage. Apparently, I, I I didn't get the memo. You should have been on a treadmill powering your I, I should have been doing that whole thing the whole time. I wondered about that. Um, there's also a demographic reality, which is that you, the population of the planet is is uh, ceasing to grow much more quickly than most people thought the population of the planet was going to grow uh, to the point where, you know, when we're certainly not going to hit in 2050 UN projections of 11 or 12 billion that was thought of at the end of the 20th century, you know, we may not even hit 10 billion, you know, maybe we'll hit nine. That won't mean that all the people, you know, you talked about this, Jason, that most of the emissions going forward are going to be from quote unquote, the world formerly known as developing. Um, But surely fewer people, I mean, if you look at Japan today, fewer people more urbanized, and that assumes that they stay more urbanized post COVID uh, is its own partial amelioration here. Right. I mean, or is it just that the, the 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 time at which that population effect is going to come in and read to reduce energy intensivity is just is not lined up uh, in time soon enough? Well, it certainly is not a solution to the climate challenge. I mean, you know, every ton of CO2 adds to the problem. It's a question of how quickly you see those impacts. And is it a decade? Is it 100 years? Which is why net zero needs to be the goal. Uh, and 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 that's not going to change without a fundamental change in the global energy system. If you want to know how quickly emissions will rise, you know you want to know how quickly energy use will rise. There has been a pretty clear historic relationship between GDP growth and population growth, and that tells you pretty closely what's going to happen to energy growth. And in the past, that has told you what is going to happen to CO2 emissions because the carbon intensity of the energy use was pretty consistent. That is what's starting to change, not quickly enough. And that's what has to break apart. We are still going to use more energy. The question about population growth and GDP growth will determine the slope of that growth um, because we have you know, many parts of the world that, uh, that, that are still developing and still, still growing, growing their economies. Um, but, but, but we need, and energy efficiency can play a pretty important role. It doesn't get talked about enough, actually, to moderate that growth as well. Uh, but fundamentally, we need to change the energy system and the way our oh, we meet those needs, the sources of energy, uh, or how CO two emissions are otherwise um, captured or removed. Oh, I think your new you're computer, mute. your mute, mute. Yeah. Sorry, is that? I mean. It- is it just, it's like a nice idea, but it's too far away and won't happen quickly enough? Do you agree with the GDP? It's the GDP, it's not the people? 
do I agree with that? Uh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, there have been these instances where GDP growth has been delinked from emissions growth. And I it, it does seem to be about gaining efficiencies. Like, I don't know at what point in a country's trajectory of GDP growth, it's possible to delink it from growth and emissions. And I think a lot is going to be determined by the scale, the, the speed um, at which technologies that are low emissions technologies, zero emissions technologies uh, scale up and, um, and spread throughout the world. So, um, so I think in general, you know, I agree with Jason's notion of this trend, um, but I do think, right, we have, there's just an extraordinary amount of innovative capacity in this country and all around the world. I mean, the fact that, I mean, just look at the time frame in which we developed, we developed, I can't even take credit. Um, so the, this vaccine, the messenger RNA vaccines that were developed um, with such a high degree of effectiveness for this virus that was only identified, you know, about a year ago, um, we're now, you know, giving those vaccines and getting those vaccines. And that is just like an extraordinary rate of technological progress. And I know that this is not, you know, it's not even related to the world of energy or energy storage or low carbon emissions or carbon removal or regenerative agriculture. But the, the fact of the matter is that if we put enough focus and investment um, into some of these new technologies, I think that there are unimaginable ways in which they can help us reconcile and change some of these sort of cut through these Gordian knots, change some of these dynamics that have been inextricable. So let's uh, do some of, the, some of the questions that have come up so far. Uh, one of which is, you know, to you being about what you think about whether or not there's going to be a real change in in Biden land, uh, other than Paris and and a, and a commitment, you know, is that going to translate into policy that is meaningful? Yeah. Uh, will there actually be a bill? I mean, is are are people going to basically turn around and go, you got your 1.9, and you'll have people like Senator Manchin saying, I'm not going to authorize a massive infrastructure or green bill unless Republicans sign on, and then. No Republicans, and there we are. And obviously, Jason, you've you've thought about this a lot too. So maybe you can both address that question. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people feel differently about this than I do. But as far as I'm concerned, um, it doesn't matter uh, what color dress uh, the climate policy and climate action and investment that you're making is wearing. The dress does not have to be green, in my view. Um, so you know, if you look at this COVID. Uh, recovery bill um, and look at um, some of the investments that are being made in public transit, more than $30 billion for public transit across um, states and cities in the U.S., um, hundreds of billions of dollars that can be applied by states uh, to infrastructure projects of different kinds. Um, there's a huge amount of spending there that is climate friendly at a minimum and can be seen as um, within the context where Jason, how Jason framed this, you know, spending only takes you so far, but are in the context of making our communities more resilient, uh, moving people away from car-based uh, um, fossil fuel transportation. And so it is already happening that that policy um, is being passed by this administration. Um, do I think it's far enough, fast enough for the problems that we face? No, not at all. Um, I think there are some exceptions to that. I mean, I think it would be really great to see Congress 
um, converge around some sort of carbon pricing legislation and or a clean energy standard, a national clean energy standard uh, that would do, you know, have the effect of doing what the more ambitious renewable portfolio standards do, where they specify a certain amount of electricity that has to be bought from uh, zero emission sources uh, in the power sectors. And so legislation like that, um, there have been bipartisan proposals around that. And I think if if Joe Biden can make good on the sort of political messaging and framing that he has opened with and talking about climate change, talking about jobs, talking about um, actually being able to help people transition out of fossil fuel jobs into sort of the new economy and new infrastructure jobs, uh, he might be able to win over, you know, the Joe Mansions. You know, he might be able to help them appeal enough to their constituents. And the question is, how do you do that, right? Because there's a like a national level at which jobs are lost and gained, but how does that help, you know, the people in West Virginia? How does that help people in particular places um, who might see a threat from uh, particular kinds of legislation? And, and so I think those are kind of political questions that need to be grappled with. Uh, but I've been, I've been hopeful based on the way I've seen them come out with, um, with the approach to the policy and the approach to the politics. And I think a lot depends on Congress, you know, a lot depends on what kind of leadership Congress is going to show. Yeah, I would just say, um, so, so I, I agree. And, and by the way, it's not just Biden, if, if, if even before in terms of what can Congress do and what can they get done, the December COVID relief bill included significant government uh, investment in some climate priorities, the two most significant for the phase down of HFCs, a potent greenhouse gas, and the 45Q tax credit for carbon capture and sequestration. Those two things combined more than offset the negative carbon impacts of Trump's rollbacks of some significant Obama era regulations. So they made a real difference. Uh, I think Bina's right that we'll see uh, a big push from this administration in a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill for green climate priorities and extension of tax credits for solar and wind, building retrofits that can put people to work and reduce energy use in buildings, investments in our electric vehicle charging infrastructure. All of those are important. The point I made in that foreign policy piece you referenced earlier, Zach, was what does ambition look like? The Europeans and the environmentalists have sort of set, made clear for the nationally determined contribution, that's our target for 2030. People will wanna see a 50% decline by 20, in 2030 relative to 2005. And if you take all of the things the administration could do with its executive authority without Congress, you think ambitiously and in, a, in the realm of feasible, I don't think we're spending trillions and trillions just on clean energy of what going big on, on that might look like in an infrastructure bill. And you take state level action, which is also important. That can do a lot, but it doesn't get you that all the way there. You still need more. And uh, I think to Bina's point, that means you need congressional comprehensive climate legislation of some sort, whether it's a meaningful carbon price or sectoral standards or something else, but we need further action. And that means as Pollyannish and naive as it sounds to think about working across the aisle, um, we, we, we're gonna have to try. So one more question from audience line and then we'll wrap up. Um, nuclear, you know, this always comes up as a, particularly when people think about mitigation versus prevention, right? Why are we not more embraceive of, uh, of any and all that leads to a less carbon intensive future rather than having said, you know, this, this option, yes, that option, no. 
I'm happy to start. And I, you know, I, it's the 10th anniversary of the Fukushima disaster in Japan. Yeah, the question, actually, I think the person who asked the question did actually reference that. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And I was in Fukushima. Um, I was in Fukushima on the seventh anniversary of the disaster. And, um, you know, in the aftermath of that disaster for, you know, good reason, uh, they decommissioned something like 42, 40, more than 40 uh, nuclear power plants in Japan. And um, the result of that is that they, uh, Japan went from being a leader in terms of emissions reductions and climate commitments to uh, having a, a growth in fossil fuel emissions, replacing a lot of that with um, liquid natural gas and fossil fuels. And, and Germany so, as well, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we have to be have realistic conversations when we talk about decarbonizing the electricity sector in this country by 2035. Uh, that is a very you, you're not going to do that if you get rid of the existing nuclear uh, fleet. Um, you know, when it comes to investing in new nuclear, I think that's where your question really becomes relevant, Zach, because it is you know it's cost prohibitive. And part of the one of the reasons, one of the many reasons it's cost prohibitive is that people are averse to nuclear um, and nobody wants it in their backyard, similar to other power, you know, other energy infrastructure. People don't tend to want it um, even, you know, out here off of <laughs> off of the beautiful um, vineyard and Cape where people have fought um, fought wind farms, offshore wind farms. And so um, you part of the challenge we have is how do we do this fast enough without new nuclear? Um, and I, and I don't know what the answer is to that and how, how to overcome that, but it does relate to this idea of the, what's imaginable people really hold in their memories. It's sear, it sears people's memories, the nuclear disasters that have existed, despite the fact that the trend has been, um, safer and safer nuclear reactors, um, with really notable horrific exceptions. And if there isn't a better way to prepare for and shore up and, create more foresight within nuclear regulatory um, agencies around the world, if there isn't a way to better do that within the nuclear industry, then it's not safe. You know, they're not wrong to be afraid of it. Um, but there's a real conundrum there. And I, and I just, um, you know, I think it's not, it's not tenable to be um, anti-nuclear and be realistic about decarbonization. So I think we're at our, uh, Extremely oh, no. accelerated witching hour, which which is which is very strange. We didn't even get it in enough to um, kind of the mitigation versus living with questions. So maybe we'll have to continue the conversation at another point. Um, I do think, you know, when when people start focusing on these issues with their complexity, I mean, you know, the the, the, the points you just made are absolutely the ones that need to be part of a mature conversation about what we can do and how we can do it, right? That there are trade-offs and, you know, going away from things that have some positive effect in terms of uh, carbon emissions. Uh, you, you can't just, it's not an easy set of choices, right? Um, and, and, you know, Jason, your point about, there's a very American tendency to look at our agency in this, uh, even though the global reality is gonna be far more important in the next 20 years. It's not to say that what the United States does is unimportant. It's just that 
it, it's it's one factor amongst many. And you know, we're not going to wave, wave a magic wand and have Nigeria suddenly become, you know, a middle class carbon neutral state. Um, but I do think it's vital when people think about these things to think about them in terms of you know, these are, these are large problems, but human beings have been engaged in the process of both creating large problems and solving them for, if not ever, then, then most of what we can record or call history. And uh, that's important, I think, to remember as a backdrop to all of this, right? That, that human beings have had a capacity to solve problems, which is no guarantee that they're going to have a capacity to solve them in the future. I mean, Bina, you wrote a whole book about this, right? Which is how one looks at the matrix of problems and the ability to constructively solve them is an essential starting point for that solution. Um, and, you know, that's largely why I want to keep having these conversations within this rubric of a, of a progress network, which is, again, by no means to underplay the, the intensity of the challenges, but it's also by no means to underplay the incredible capacity of people to meet those challenges observably over time. Um, and both of you, I think, are doing absolutely crucial work. Uh, now, being at you, especially, you know, bringing ideas together in a forum and at the Globe and Jason with the work you're doing at Columbia. And Emma, I want to thank you again for hosting. Um, these will be uh, recorded. This has been recorded and we'll, <laughs> we'll put this up on YouTube and on our own channel. So if you want to watch again and again and again you can you can do that as well <laughs> no. as long as your battery doesn't run out that's right which you know i thought was i thought was just a perfect a perfect cherry i'll just say if it was a nuclear powered laptop it would not have run out of it, it would have been fine or being, a, or being his idea with the, the treadmill thing which i i'll, I'll take under control. i'm pretty sure solar would have been reliable in miami too that's true although it's night so that might have been yeah that might have been a little bit of an issue are we all set emma we're all set. Thanks for everyone for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Good night. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Barbalukas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ombro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.